It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Dernley. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as the catastrophe at the Kohovka Dam continues to dominate global headlines, we also examine news that offensives are continuing across the front lines and return once again to the issue of Ukrainian children and how listeners to this podcast have reached out to help them. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 8th of June, one year and 104 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor of Defence, Dominic Nichols, former Tank and Chemical Weapons Battalion Commander, Hamish de Breton-Gordon, and freelance journalist, Gabrielle Lushviak. I started by asking Dom for the breaking stories from Ukraine. Sure. Hi, Francis, and hi, everybody. Let's start with the dam. So President Zelensky has been in Hezon today, meeting rescuers and volunteers evacuating trapped residents there. The region's governor, Alexander Pokudin, he said the average level of flooding is 5.61 metres, very specific, 5.61 metres. He says 600 square kilometres of the Hezon region are underwater, of which 32% is the right bank. So that's that's the Ukrainian bank and 68% is the left bank, the bank temporarily held by Russia. Mr. Prokudin said, he added that despite the danger and the heavy Russian shelling, there has been a reported uptick in the Russian shelling, including from our our colleague Catherine over at the Times today. The evacuation from the flooded area continues, he says. Now, the State Emergency Service of Ukraine said 1,995 people have been evacuated from flooded areas, including 103 children. And Denis Shmial, who's Ukraine's prime minister, he called on the Red Cross to step in to save the lives of the tens of thousands of people there, um, particularly on the left bank, those that have been abandoned by the, the Russian forces there. Mr Shmial said the Russian occupiers don't even make an effort to help these people they have left them to perish, said that on, on Telegram. 
Now, satellite images and uh, video footage on social media do suggest the, the Russian-controlled left bank, the east, east and south bank, has borne the brunt of the damage. Residents in the occupied town of Oleshki, which is about, about 30 miles down from the dam, they were filmed rowing. Residents there filmed rowing to safety, waving from windows. Uh, they were telling relatives nobody had come to rescue them. There's drone footage. We've got it on our website at the moment of a Ukrainian drone that went over the flooded area was dropping bottles of water to residents there. The Red Cross says the destruction of the dam is going to have a catastrophic effect on clearing landmines, many of which are floating in the floodwaters. I mean, they're generally heavy, these things, but the amount of water, the the weight of the water can dislodge them and move them down downstream. We've seen this before with the plastic mines. They're very prone to, uh, well, they float if an area floods. So it's the same sort of thing here, even though they're much heavier sort of metal anti-tank mines. Now, Eric Tollefson, who's head of the Weapon Contamination Unit of the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, he said, uh, we, knew where the, we knew where the hazards were, as in the landmines. We knew where the hazards were. Now we don't know. All we know is that they are somewhere downstream. This is a major concern because it will affect not just the population, but also all of those that are coming in to help. Now, the ISW, the Institute for the Study of War, US-based think tank, they said that near-infrared imagery from yesterday shows flooding is has, has heavily disrupted the Russian prepared military defensive lines on the left bank, especially around the 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 areas, the towns of Holopristan and Oleshki. Other other sources have said that those two places and Kojacha Lahari and Dnipriani are almost entirely flooded with water rising to about the the height of a one story building in some areas. Now the Ukrainian forces have set up a headquarters to to kind of run the the evacuation operation and the rescue and relief efforts there. They say 29 settlements are partially or fully flooded, 19 in Ukrainian-controlled territory, 10 on Russian-occupied territory. Russian sources have published footage. They, they said that water has started to recede from Novokokovka, that's the, the village right up by the dam from which the dam gets its name. They say that the water level there has dropped by 30 centimetres, they claimed that water levels have gone down by uh, three to four metres in some areas, down from a height of 10 metres after the, the initial flow. But they say that water levels in Mikolaev City has, have gone up by 70 centimetres. Now, on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, because, of course, there's, there's great concern about what the water level will... Uh, will the, the impact the water level will have there. So... Energy Atom, who is the state enterprise operating all four of Ukraine's nuclear power plants, they say that the water level in the cooling pond of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is stable in a statement. They said, according to the latest information, the water level at the Kakov Reservoir in the Nikopol area as of nine o'clock this morning, uh, so June the 8th this morning, they said that the height there is 13 metres depth of water. And in the cooling pond of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, it's 16.6. They added, this is quite enough to meet the station's needs. Now, uh, Ihor Sorota, we quoted him yesterday. He's the general director of Hydro Energo, who's the overarching state enterprise looking after the, the power, the water power there, told Ukrainian television that what he referred to as the dead zone is 12.7 metres, after which there will not be any water intake for either of the cooling ponds at the nuclear power 
plant. So, you know, one one to ask uh, Hamish a little bit later, but 12.7 metres, that's according to Mr. Sarota. And um, Enigo, uh, Enigo Atom is saying that they've got 13 metres and 16.6 in the two cooling ponds. Now, onto the counter-offensive. British Defence Intelligence saying heavy fighting has continued along multiple sectors of the front. Obviously, our eyes taken slightly off the ball in the last couple of days about this, partly because the, the lack of reporting available. But let's have a, let's have a look at the the well, do we call it the counteroffensive or just just the war is is continuing? Obviously, now in most areas, uh, Ukraine is on the on the offensive, as in has the initiative and they are dictating the pace. So. Let's go north to south. We're going to start in Bakhmut, so the east of the Donbass, where we've been um, for a number of months now. So in Bakhmut, Ukrainian forces said, well, uh, continued fighting yesterday on the flanks of the city. Alexander Sierski, who's um, the Ukrainian commander of ground forces, he said Kyiv's troops have continued to advance on the flanks in Bakhmut and Russian occupiers are being pushed back. This offensive is largely being carried out by Ukraine's third separate assault brigade, part of the Azov Brigade. In a television broadcast yesterday, Sahana Malia, Ukraine's deputy defence minister, said that Russian Russia lacks forces in Bakhmut and was having to bring in troops from other positions. She's confirmed what we what we thought was happening and actually what Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of Wagner Group, had said. But she says that Wagner have been pulled out of the city and moving to rear positions of the city with more professional airborne assault units, the VDV, Russian Airborne Forces, being pushed into the fight. I mean, they are what they were professional soldiers as in they they weren't conscripted at the start of the full-scale invasion but they've had a they've had a big old doshing since then so quite how many of them are experienced and professional soldiers now we do not know but they're also thought to be the reserves and once you commit your reserves that is it's almost like a last chance saloon you you commit your reserves to plug gaps exploit opportunities but it takes a little while to for you to then build up that um you know that that sort of that safety net again so if they've if russia have committed their reserves into bakhmut that is that is quite a significant um event we will be watching that one with great interest now russia's defense ministry the mod in, in moscow said that it has repelled the attacks they put out a statement saying uh, quote the adversary did not achieve the goal of the offensive wedging into our defensive positions has not been permitted unquote so Good. Moscow denying uh, it's been given a wedgie by Ukraine there. Now, this was somewhat contradicted by Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of Wagner, who said that Moscow would need at least 200,000 troops to stall the Ukrainian offensive and said that Kyiv's troops had already broken through, his words, broken through Russia's lines of defence in several areas. So that was Bakhmut. Let's now go 50 kilometres further south to Donetsk City. British Defence Intelligence today saying that Chechen units have led an unsuccessful attempt to push into the town of Marivka. This is a suburb about 5Ks west of Donetsk city itself. Frontline there has changed, well, barely at all since 2015. But Chechen units, the first we've seen of them recently, Ramzan Kadyrov's bunch, first we've seen of them and they've not been successful now, let's go 10Ks northwest from there. Overnight, Russian shellings killed three people, including a four-year-old boy. This is in the town of Ukrainsk. That's according to the regional governor, who said that five people, including three children, were also wounded in that attack. And then finally, let's now go 120 kilometres southwest into Zaporizhia Oblast. Russian sources have there have, or have said that Ukraine's launched another axis of advance there, a new offensive in the southern Zaporizhia region. They're saying, this is Russian 
sources are saying, armed with tanks, artillery, multiple launch rockets, etc. Russian mill bloggers are saying that there's a new push from Ukraine towards Tokmak, which is about 50 k's-ish north-northeast of Melitopol, almost halfway, not quite, to Zaporizhia itself in the in the Zaporizhia region there. So, you know, the... The war carries on. Obviously, we will we will get information where we can, when we can, and and keep updated there. But it does look as if there's a number of pushes across a large part of the centre and south southern bits of uh, of the line down almost as far as the uh, where the where the flooding has occurred. But I'll take a take a pause there. Well, thanks, Dom. I'll come back to you in a moment on the subject of the UN. But first, there are just a few political updates to cycle through. President Joe Biden is welcoming British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak for what we understand are wide ranging talks today as Mr Sunak makes his first White House visit as Premier. The leaders Oval Office talks are expected to cover the war in Ukraine extensively. Also China, economic security, international cooperation on regulating the growing field of artificial intelligence and many more subjects. The White House press secretary has said the 15 month old Russian invasion of the Ukraine will be top of mind. That's their quote there. The two leaders will review a range of global issues, including our economic partnership or shared support of Ukraine as it defends itself against Russia's war of aggression, as well as further action to accelerate the clean energy transition. Of course, just providing a bit of context on this, the US and UK are the two biggest donors to the Ukraine war effort and have played a central role in a long-term effort announced last month to train and eventually equip Ukrainian pilots on F-16 fighter jets. And as we were talking about yesterday, I expect there'll be some further updates on that quite soon. The F-16 issue is clearly paramount for Ukraine and is a priority, as we know from President Zelensky, and clearly things are moving on that. So watch this space. There's also been an interesting story from Germany in the last 24 hours. A Ukrainian woman has been fined 900 euros for vocally condoning the Russian invasion of Ukraine, making her the latest person to fall foul of Germany's strict propaganda laws. So a court in Cologne has found this lady had posed a threat to the public peace by giving a speech at a pro-Russian protest in which she described the invasion of Ukraine as necessary. During the protest last year to commemorate the end of the Second World War, she had told a television channel that Russia was not an aggressor and the judge found that these two comments were sufficient evidence that she had endorsed and supported the Russian war in a way that was perceptible to others. She describes herself as a peace activist and has insisted after the trial that she was being persecuted for her determination to tell the truth. And her lawyer has said that she's preparing to challenge the ruling all the way up to the country's Supreme Court. Now, to some listeners, this will, of course, sound like a suppression of free speech. But I think some context is important here. Ever since the Second World War, Germany has had far stricter rules than many other European countries against, uh, sorry, around the boundaries of speech, in effect, to try and ensure there is no danger of a far-right resurgence. It's most notable, of course, on the issue of Holocaust denial. The German penal code publicly 
prohibits denying the Holocaust and disseminating Nazi propaganda. So quite an interesting story that people are now being prosecuted on that penal code. Now, speaking of court cases, Russia has urged judges at the United Nations highest court to throw out a case brought by Ukraine against Moscow over the 2014 and the arming of rebels in eastern Ukraine before Russia's full-scale invasion in February last year. So the Russian ambassador to the Netherlands, Alexander Sholgin, has told judges at the International Court of Justice, we appear before you today in order to demonstrate that Ukraine's application must be dismissed because it is without any legal foundation, nor does it have any factual evidence to back it. Lawyers for Ukraine said as hearings in the case opened that Russia bankrolled a campaign of intimidation and terror by rebels in eastern Ukraine starting in 2014 and sought to replace Crimea's multi-ethnic community with discriminatory Russian nationalism. Ukraine filed the case in 2017, asking the World Court to order Moscow to pay reparations for attacks and crimes such as the shooting down of MH17 by Russian missile fire from the territory controlled by Moscow-backed rebels in July 2014, killing all passengers and crew aboard. The Ukrainian government alleges that Russia breached two treaties, the International Convention for the Suppression of the Financing of Terrorism and the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. Now, I mention this just because it shows, obviously, the legal wrangling here. And this is an ongoing issue within the UN of these kind of cases coming up. But I think it's also important just to draw attention to the fact that Ukraine has been highlighting again and again and again over many years what Russia has been doing in its country, in its territory and yet was largely ignored or at the very least was sidelined in the importance given to that, which may speak to the timetable as to why this has only been come forward now. And the fact is that if they had been listened to far earlier, then perhaps we would not be in the situation, the terrible situation that we are in now. But I say more on that story as we have it. The final thing I want to talk about is reference to the fact that the UK has announced additional funding to the International Atomic Agency to support its work in Ukraine. I think that's a signal, perhaps, that more must be done by the international community to ensure that no incident is perpetrated against nuclear sites. I know you've been looking into this, Dom, but before I go back to you, we received an interesting email from a listener that I wanted to put to you following our collective remarks about the UN yesterday. So I'll just read from that. I am former UN staff and while being horrified like you, the reality is there are many UN agencies on the ground bringing relief and support to Ukraine. On a political level, the UN is only the reflection of what states allow it to be. The Security Council is a forum for states. And while the Charter is about we as the people, the UN as a group of states is what they've decided to make it. I would suggest, therefore, to avoid blaming the messenger and be more nuanced. Let's look for more tangible, clear positions of states. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. And in today's world, the sad reality is that we would not be able to create a multilateral organisation like the UN. So, Don, what are your thoughts on that and the Atomic Agency story? Well, firstly, on the Atomic Agency story, I've gone back to the Foreign Office here and asked for more detail. They did, they did come back to me, to be, to be fair to them, and they've, they've now got a clearer idea of what I'm after. And hopefully they'll come back with some more information. But I was asking basically what the money has gone on and whether or not any of it has gone on a, a sort of monitoring system. Have we got CCTV and seismic centres and all sorts of other bits and bobs around Zaporizhian nuclear power plant 
to to dictate or to um, let us know if anything's happening there rather than after any event go oh if that could have been from the inside or the outside and so on and so forth so you know they've they've um, they've yet to come back to me on that one and i also asked them if there's any conversation at all around iea circles of trying to establish a demilitarized zone around the nuclear power plant doing any taking any real i I admit this would be big action but these are there's big consequences here so foreign office (laughs) have gone off with those those ideas and hopefully we'll come back with some clear answers but don't hold your breath i will let you know uh, as and when they do on the un uh, yeah okay look uh, the UN's a reflection of what states allow it to be. I don't know. I, I'm sorry. I, it, it needs to be more than that. I mean, as you said yesterday, Francis, it, it's it's not a mirror. It should lead. It, it needs to shape events. And I think the UN has done that in the past. And there are certain areas where there are a lot of international bodies thinking, I'm thinking like disaster relief, the recent earthquake in Turkey, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of bodies that can that can come and help. That's great. I want the UN to do more than that. So then you get into the the, the big the big stuff of you know, the shooting match. That's where I want the UN to be able to take a real lead, and it has done in the past. I mean, the Korean War, Gulf War One, when Iraq invaded Kuwait. I mean, these were UN actions. I know it's very difficult. I know it's difficult to get consensus on this, and I know you've got the lens of NATO if you try to do something here. But and these are tricky problems. I'm not I'm not denying that, but. For the for the amount of money that's spent on the UN, and all the headquarters and all the people and all the agencies and the, just the admin of it all, if when we get to the world's thorniest issues, we seem to have a kind of oh, arms thrown in the air, kind of oh, all, all too difficult. I'm afraid that is unacceptable, and I don't I don't think I'm being too too binary here. But you know the UN, the UN needs to be able to operate in across the spectrum of permissive environments through semi-permissive, i.e. humanitarian relief, and into non-permissive. It needs to be able to take action in these areas, and it needs to find a way through. It needs to come up with some ideas, such as a demilitarized zone around the area of flooding, put, put, put some, put some you know, take, take a while to find countries that are, that are su- sufficiently acceptable to, to all sides here, but you know, get some blue helmets in there and some, and some relief activity going on. Then maybe extend that into the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. But I think, I think there needs to be open conversations. Okay, I, I said yesterday we need to have a conversation about should Russia be on the, the UN Security Council. Okay, maybe that's a bit to go from from zero to, to hero in, in one step maybe a bit too much right now but i think that that's out there we do need to have that chat at some point but let's start off with some with some things that the un can do or can try and sponsor can go around i mean are people cutting about the un now asking countries to, if they'd be willing to, to to put people into harm's way i accept that in uh, ukraine to help the relief effort for this for this dam yeah i i, I don't know if that is happening i don't know if we'd if we'd know necessarily, but I'd like to. I'd like to think it is. This is fairly uncontentious. I would. I would have thought, and you know, I want the UN to work. I want there to be something above the sovereign state, not 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 dictating to sovereign states, but but some means of of holding to account. Um, but I am I am marching towards a position the UN you know, get involved or get out of the way because I it's, it's I, I don't know what it's adding right now. And to say there's a lot of relief effort sponsored by the UN happening inside Ukraine right now. That's good. But I want you right at the hard edge of it, right at the top end. 
right where it's really it's really mucky and dusty and dirty and, and the UN's lost thousands of peacekeepers over the years I get that putting people in harm's way but these are the world's thorniest issues and we were talking yesterday about the distance where we are now in 2023 from the second world war the UN was established after the second world war to stop that happening again and it's done that job brilliantly but the way it's done that is by by kind of stopping activity with a with the P5 and the UN Security Council and the and the power of the veto to, to stop activity. And as I've said before, if that allows the occasional Bosnia or the occasional Rwanda or the occasional Syria, that that might have been a price the world was prepared to pay back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, blah, blah, blah. I think we're beyond that now. And I want the UN to, to do more. And I don't think it's acceptable now to say we're doing our best, but hey, brrr, it's really it's really tough. I, I want more. Get Get involved or get out of the way. Well, thanks for that, Dom. We'll come to Gabriella very shortly. But first of all, Hamish, you, it's been a little while since you've been on the podcast. Obviously, it's the first time since the destruction of the dam. And you wrote a piece for the paper yesterday reflecting on your memories of an incident when you were one of the Pashmerga's chemical weapons advisors in the fight against ISIS. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that and how it plays into this fear of yours about the danger of Zaporizhia being weaponized by Russia. I know for months you have been arguing that Putin would think nothing of triggering some kind of incident there that would, if, it, if he felt it would give him some kind of tactical advantage. I assume you still hold that view and feel somewhat vindicated in this past week. Well, hi, good, good afternoon, everybody. And thanks for having me on at this really critical time in the conflict. Just before I go into that, just pick up a little bit on on what Don was saying about the detectors and everything else around Zaporizhia and elsewhere. I think I can say without breaking any confidences, because, you know, I I want the Russians to know that that there is preparation. And and I did some work some time ago with, with another government and funded by other governments on providing a really comprehensive detective capability so that if if there is any leaks or accidents people in ukraine will very quickly know exactly where it is and what to do about it one of the lessons from the fukushima disaster was because people didn't know what type of radiation or the levels of it and where it was lots of decisions were made millions of people were moved to the wrong place so actually if you have this actionable intelligence provided by a network, which I'm very happy to say is British technology, you can do things. So I, I, whether the MOD is fully engaged in that, I don't know. But certainly some work I did in the early part of the conflict with others has given the basis for that. So and we'll come back to Zaporizhia, because in my piece, and, and as we've discussed, you know, I've been really concerned. And, and it really goes back to my time with the Peshmerga. Um, some people remember back in 2017, when ISIS were very much on the run in northern Iraq and had been concentrated in Mosul, which is a pretty large city in the north of Iraq, about 30, 40 kilometers to the east of um, Erbil, the capital of northern Iraq, Kurdistan. And um, we, Islamic State, had used chemical weapons quite a lot against the Peshmerga and against the Iraqi army, mainly fairly unsophisticated mortars full of chlorine and a bit of mustard agent, aka mustard gas. But it it had this terrifying effect and really, at times, uh, affected the Iraqi army and the Peshmerga too. But the the thing that really stuck out in my mind, which relates to the 
to the blowing of the dam and the potential of Zaporizhia was when Islamic State blew up a massive sulfur mine called Al-Mishrak, which is about uh, 30 kilometers due south of Mosul. And what this did was put about 400,000 tons of sulfur dioxide uh, into the air and and created, and it, it moved across the advancing Iraqi army. And it really, it stalled them because although they, if you wear a gas mask, you know, you can go through this, you'll be fine. But, you know, at the time it was about 45 degrees centigrade. You can only wear these things for a few minutes and that sort of thing. But it also panicked people. You you could see this cloud. And I remember a lot of journalists, and I can't remember if any of the Telegraph journalists were there ringing me up saying, what on earth do we do? Uh, And I said, well, you you probably want to know where the wind is and, and, and run the other way type of thing to get out of it. But it had a profound effect of slowing the, the Iraqi army down and really having to wait for that to disperse. And then they sort of went round uh, and us and the Peshmerga were actually on the flank up towards the bill, but saw it all unfolding. In a similar fashion, the blowing of the dam, and as I said in my piece in The Telegraph yesterday and today, I, I have absolutely no doubts it was a deliberate attempt because I don't know, I'm sorry I missed the pod yesterday, but you, I'm sure you talked about assault river crossings, which if the plan was to go across the Dnipro in that area, an assault river crossing is, is a really one of the most challenging military operations that you can do because you have to coordinate it with artillery and air and all the rest of it. So although the Russians are saying a lot of their defensive positions have been affected by this actually instead of having a river you know a kilometer or so across you've now got this vast stretch of water several kilometers or or more in places which would be virtually impossible to do any sort of assault crossing and of course going over the dam was was a key part to it so my experience alibite with terror groups like isis creating some sort of boundary if you like water or potentially with radiation, can have a a, a massive effect. And just before I stop, I know I've gone on for a long time here, I'm absolutely with Dom on the demilitarised zones. And I think it's about time that the the UN really got involved there, because we absolutely need a demilitarised zone around Zaporizhia, 30 miles to the minimum, to ensure that there is no accident. And I was just reviewing some notes, and I'll, I'll probably post it online later, You might remember at the beginning of May, the Atomic Energy Agency said that they thought that that there were explosives in some, I think it's Hall 4, in Zaporizhia. And, you know, I'm pretty pretty convinced that that it was explosives that blew up the dam. I'm doing a piece with Sky actually later, and some of of the pictures that absolutely show an explosion from below rather than, than an artillery shell from above. So if that is the case then we need to get the UN in there. We need to get that secured so that Zaporizhia does not become some sort of improvised nuclear weapon. I'll, I'll stop for breath there. Well, you know, in a sense, Hamish, you've, you've uh, stolen my next question from me because I was going to ask you that if you were advising the UN and, uh, and NATO as to what needs to be done, 
around Zaporizhia, what would it be? And I take from that that you believe that there should be a demilitarized zone and that there need to be international observers on the ground. And of course, that was something that with regard to the dam, as we spoke about yesterday and the day before, President Zelensky was calling for that you have international observers there that can ensure this is not permitted to happen with there being any doubt about who is responsible. And that's the thing here is that Russia can plausibly deny that it wasn't them. And that you you get governments who say, well, we need to look at the evidence, including very prominent Western governments as a result of that. And if you have international observers there, then there can be no doubt. Now, fortunately, with Zaporizhia, we do know that there are agencies there who are monitoring the situation closely. But there is still, as you say, an immense risk. So it's we've just got to hope that, that more is done on that. But just staying with you for one more point, Hamish. Now, I know we may not want to name the universities yet, but I understand you're doing some work with us on looking into how universities here in Britain may have been contributing to drone technology being used against Ukraine. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. This is a breaking, breaking story with Gabriella Swelling, who's who, who who's one of the team at Telegraph Towers, who's looking into this. The story broke literally just before the pod came on. It was an investigation by the Jewish Chronicle, I believe. It is online, so you can look at it. And uh, again, it, it is a breaking story that there there appears to be some British universities who, uh, and, and I almost find myself unable to say this, that there seem to be some British universities who've been working with Iranian universities on drone technology. Now, you know, my, my comments to Gabriella to begin with is, I just cannot believe this. It, it uh, you, you, you know, there seems, I can think of no reason why British universities would be working with Iranian universities. So, so I'm yet to see the full script of it. But one can see that universities all the time are looking to develop technology and do research. That's what they're there for. I can see that drone technology is something that everybody's interested in at the moment. And as we've discussed many times on the pod, that drone warfare has been one of the, the, the key things that has come out of the conflict in, in Ukraine. And, and they who command the drone airways really have the advantage. So if if we are if we in any way are helping Iran develop its very capable drone technology, that to me that seems absolutely incongruous. But I I would say let, let's for those who look at the Jewish Chronicle, I think they published it online, uh, and there'll be a much more detailed piece by Gabriella, I'm sure later online and and in tomorrow's paper. Well, thank you for that, Hamish. I think this is a really important issue to highlight, which is, of course, relevant not only in the Iranian context and the Russian context, but also in the Chinese context. We know many stories and instances of Chinese investment in British universities and universities around the world. And there are, of course, concerns that they are using that to steal technological intelligence. But perhaps that's a subject for another day. Gabriella, thank you so much for your patience. It's great to have you back on the podcast and you're going to talk to us about the issue of children again today in lots of different fashions. So first of all, you were last talking to us about ways in which listeners could perhaps help children. And I understand that one listener reached out to you and there have been some developments in this space. 
Oh, hi, Francis. Yeah, thank you very much for having me back on the show. Actually, I'm going to tell you about two listeners that have been been um, responding to these podcasts. And before I do, I just thought I would recap a little bit about the state of play for children, just for the listeners, just to remind you of the statistics. So there was about 7.5 million children in Ukraine when the full-scale invasion began. According to UNICEF, 1.2 million of those children are now displaced within Ukraine itself. And many, many more have left the country. So in total, about 7.7 million Ukrainians have have left Ukraine. 90% of those are women and children. So some of those children in other countries will be attending schools in those countries. But many of them are actually still doing online learning from a host country back to teachers in Ukraine. And yes, so when I spoke on this podcast in November, I explained how the Ukrainian government had made this huge, valiant effort to reopen schools. They really wanted to show that the education wasn't going to suffer as a result of, of the invasion. But the big problem was that every school had to have a bomb shelter. They only managed to open about 51% of schools in September. But actually, that doesn't mean that 51% of children were learning face-to-face every day because the bomb shelters are often not big enough to accommodate all students at the same time. So many students have been learning on a part-time basis, perhaps on a rotor of going in in the morning or maybe one week in, one week one week out. So by January this year, UNICEF put out a figure that it thought only about 25% of, of students in Ukraine had actually managed to offer, managed to receive full-time face-to-face learning. So that means the vast majority of children, um, Ukrainian children, are learning online in the country or outside the country, full-time or part-time which is why having a laptop has become so important. And that was one of the points I was making on the show. And that really struck a lot of people, I think, because it's quite common to have an old laptop lying around your house here. But what can you do with it? Well, one listener, he was listening, he's from a company called Echo World London. He's the group tax manager there. And he got in touch with me and said, I think we've got plenty of laptops lying around the company that we could donate to children if you can help me get them there. So... I put him in touch with a contact I have in Lviv at UNICEF and um, he said, that's fine, if you can get them to me, I will distribute them among some of the displaced children. The thing about the displaced children is they are unlikely to have laptops because many of them have fled their homes in a hurry. They're living in temporary accommodation. Their parents, or they might just be with one parent or if they're with two parents, they're likely to be having problems finding work or finding highly paid work. So they just don't have the money to buy technical equipment. So Joshua managed to pull together about 38 laptops. And then he had to find some transport, which was also a bit challenging. But in the end, he did find a very cheap man in a van who drove it all there for only £190. And they arrived in Lviv at the end of May. And Roman sent me a photograph on WhatsApp of himself with all the laptops. So that was really fantastic and a real kind of labour of love on, on Joshua's part because he actually cycled all the laptops from his office back to his home to get that all done. I thought the best thing to explain just how much impact it has on a family to receive a laptop would be to actually speak to one of them. So I asked Roman if he could put me in touch with one of the children who received one. And he put me on to one of his colleagues who's called Christina Chalmeris, who is a psychologist and also head of a UNICEF mobile team in Chernovograd, which is a city close to Lviv and in, in the Lviv region. And honestly, it it really is striking when you speak to real people on the ground about what daily life is like. It really hits home just how awful the situation is there. So she's seeing a lot of cases of children with disrupted sleep, anxiety, you know, those kind of startled reactions to loud noises. 
And then there's really physical reactions of kind of heart palpitations that is the kind of um, the trauma that is, is going to affect their development long term. Now, the family that, that I spoke to with her are a family who were, were living in Siversk, which is in the Bakhmut region. They left their flat on the 6th of April because the fighting was so bad. I'm sure you, the listeners, are all familiar with the Bakhmut situation and can imagine just how awful it, it has been for them. By February this year in Siversk, actually it was 80% evacuated and the whole area was pretty much pummeled with all the missiles and and the bombs. It's currently about 10 kilometres from the front line, that city. So the family, mother and father and five children, came to Chernovograd and they've been living there ever since. The little boy, the smallest one is Ivan, he's two, and he was born with some sort of eye problem. So he's actually waiting for two eye operations at the moment. The mother was a nurse and the father was a builder. They came to Novograd, they found a, a small house to rent and live in, and UNICEF has been helping them from the start. But in the autumn, when the weather became colder, the father, Vladimir, decided to travel back to his flat to collect the winter clothing. And he was caught in crossfire and he was hit by shrapnel and his leg was injured. And luckily he was brought home and he is alive, but he is highly traumatised and receiving therapy and he cannot work anymore and he's waiting for an operation for his leg so the family's life is very difficult they have a small garden where they can grow vegetables they keep some chickens they can't either of the parents can work and the children's the the children are aged the oldest is katia she's 12 and then there is karina who's 10 and then there's Stanislav, who's nine so these three children are all trying to study and between them they had one mobile phone they decided not to enrol in a local school. They wanted to keep learning from their old school. So three three children trying to do their schoolwork between them on one mobile phone. In a room, you know, with two other little brothers running around, a three-year-old and a two-year-old. You can just imagine this is, this is not an ideal situation for them at all. So the fact that they received a laptop is just a huge change for them. They now have another screen that they can use. It's a big screen. They have a keyboard. They can type up their homework. They can download school textbooks on the screen. They are so happy, and they really wanted to extend a huge thanks to Joshua for everything he did. And the, children, uh, the parents especially just said how sad it was for them that they couldn't provide for their children, so they were extremely grateful. And as well as that educational help that that laptop will provide, it, it's going to help in so many other ways because the children can now perhaps you know watch a film and relax a bit, or they can contact other friends online or perhaps the dad eventually when he's better can look for a job using the computer and as Christina told me they can actually access psychological support online now because there's plenty of online portals trying to help Ukrainians remotely with with mental health problems so that's a really lovely story thanks to one of the listeners and then I was going to move on to the second example which is slightly different another listener who got in touch again in November and I spoke and he actually contacted me from Sydney. His name is Dr. Simon Crook. He runs an educational company called Crooked Science, which offers training and support to schools to deliver science lessons. So at first he asked me, could I put him in touch with any teachers who might benefit from some science lessons online for the children? I put him in touch with a friend, um, a school teacher, who is in Zaporizhia, actually, so it's quite poignant that we're talking about Zaporizhia at the moment. And she teaches at the Zaporizhsky Stahovium Collegium in Zaporizhia, which is actually quite an interesting school. It's, it's called a school for gifted children. It's a kind of 
school where children from the surrounding area, but not immediately in Zaporizhia, who who have some sort of talent, can get supported, assisted place at the school. She's an English teacher. I put her in touch with her, and she said actually. The children would really benefit simply from having a kind of cultural exchange Zoom call. And it would also have their English, of course. So after, again, quite a lot of time it took to set it all up, on the 9th of May at 8 a.m. Ukrainian time, which was sometime late afternoon after school in, in Sydney, about 12 of the Ukrainian students aged 10 to 11 Zoomed online because they're all learning from school, they're all distance learning, went online from their homes to a classroom of about 26 students from St Ambrose Catholic Primary School in Sydney. And the, the picture is so beautiful online. There's all these individual Ukrainians at their homes. Occasionally the mums are coming in and like listening in or being told to go away and stop bothering them. And then there's this whole classroom of, of children in Australia in their uniforms. And apparently this was the first thing that the, Australian, the Ukrainian children remarked on was that the children wear uniforms in Australia and they'd never seen that before. And this just led into like a lovely discussion about pets and food and musical instruments and hobbies. I think, so Simon Crook told me that one thing that really sort of tickled the Australians was, was when the Ukrainians told them that they like to spend time playing out in the forest where there are bears and wolves and that really surprised them. Whereas obviously the Ukrainians were surprised by the koalas and the kangaroos. And then at one point, um, one of the boys, a young boy called Danya, he offered to play one of his musical instruments. And he played this short piece of Ukrainian folk music very beautifully on a recorder. And it was just a really moving moment. And the children in Australia couldn't believe how talented he was. Let's play that now. So after this event, Natalia told me that the children in Ukraine just were really buoyed by this experience. They really couldn't believe that children in other parts of the world were thinking of them and would be interested in them. And she told me how her main job at the moment is really about trying to keep children in sort of keep life in perspective, because it's so difficult for adults as well, but also for children to imagine a future at the moment. They don't know where they're going. They can't make decisions about future studies or what they would like to do as a career. They just have to kind of keep focusing on their education now and hope that things will change in the future, but they have no idea what's coming. And in Zaporizhia, obviously, there's, there's lots of air aids. There's, there's a constant awareness of the war. It's not like some of the quieter areas in the west of Ukraine. It's very visible. It's only 40 kilometres from the front line. So she said that, that just having this experience, it might sound small, but it made such a difference to them. And also, it was quite interesting. I had a chat with her as well about the fact that in Ukraine now, the summer holidays have started. So the 1st of June was Children's Day in Ukraine and also the beginning of a three-month summer holiday break. She said that parents are very nervous about this, that parents often want their children to be near them because they're worried about what might happen to them. But she said that you know a lot of parents are accepting that they have to sort of start to let go. And then I asked her about herself and, and how she was coping. And she told me that she, she tries to keep perspective, but there's always this kind of fear that the phone might ring. And she told me that recently they'd had a call at school about a former student who was 22 years old who joined the military and has just been killed. Now, this story has actually been reported on BBC Ukraine. His mother has spoken about her son in quite a lot of detail. And it's an absolutely horrendous and tragic story because 
this 22-year-old actually went to war with his 18-year-old brother. His brother got hit during an attack, um, the younger brother. The older brother, he's called Maxime, rescued his brother and then looked after him and it wasn't, they weren't able to receive any support. And the quote is that apparently they were under fire for 200 hours. That whole time he cared for his brother, he got his brother to safety and he himself got killed by a sniper. And as Natalia was telling me the story, she said to me, it's so hot here today, but right now I'm shivering and I'm cold. And it's just those moments when you hear from people in Ukraine that you realise daily life can be like this. At any point, as a teacher, a phone can ring and, and you'll hear news that one of your students or colleagues or former students has been killed, whereas they left that school expecting to have a very prosperous future. Thank you very much for that, Gabriella. Just before we go to final thoughts, I do have just one question for you, which is we obviously spoke to you last time about the issue of deported children and kidnapped children. Since then, of course, we've seen the ICC arrest warrant for Putin and the chief architect of that policy. Just wondering if there have been any other major developments since then that we haven't talked about on the podcast that you'd like to draw attention to. Thanks, Francis. Yeah, I mean, I I think there have been a lot of developments. I mean, obviously, a lot of people are reporting and we're seeing children being returned, very sort of low numbers, but in dribs and drabs. The Ukraine says so far it has returned 372 children, but that's from a verified number of 19,504 that they say have been deported, although the the Russians say the figure is around 70, sorry, 744,000. And these returns are really painstaking and, and mainly being organised by um, a charity called Save Ukraine, which is headed by Ukraine's former ombudsman for children, Nikola Kuleba. What I find interesting is actually the, the Russian kind of rhetoric around this now. They're still very adamant that this is not something they're doing. They, they will always defend themselves and say there is no crime they are committing. They are evacuating children from dangerous areas. They're bringing them to safety and there's nothing illegal about it. And also they will say that the Ukrainian government has not spoken to them directly and has not given them a list of of cases that they should be addressing. But I think there are subtle changes in the way that they're behaving because, for example, Maria Lvova-Balyova, the the Commissioner for Children's Rights, who has an arrest warrant on her head, she is often now on her Telegram channel posting videos showing Russians reuniting children with Ukrainian children with Ukrainian families and they have their own sort of helpline now and and an email address where they say if you're worried about a child please contact us and we will help find them for you so it's almost as if they're trying to show kind of the international audience or perhaps just just Russians in the country that they are actually the ones that are trying to reunite these families which I find very unusual because if they wanted to reunite the children they could simply bring them back home again themselves but they don't they they still make the parents travel all the way back to Russia to collect the child from whichever institute they might be in which is often a summer camp so for example families who have discovered their children are in Crimea have had to travel all the way west out of Ukraine through Poland into Belarus back into Russia and all the way back around again because they can't cross through the you know the hot fighting zones so my sort of question is always, you know, why don't you just bring them back yourselves if, if that's your intention? The other interesting thing that happened was there was a, a UN Security Council meeting which Lvova Belyova 
try to make the argument that some children, Ukrainian children in Europe, are being taken away from families and not being returned. And she actually showed a video of some Ukrainian mothers saying that this was the case. But this, this Security Council meeting was actually boycotted by some diplomats, including the UK and the US. It wasn't broadcast because they, allow, they refused to allow the meeting to be broadcast. You can find it. I found it on Telegram. It was posted there by the ambassador, the first the Russian first deputy permanent representative of Russia to the UN, Ambassador Dmitry Polyansky. So that's an interesting counterclaim, and they have been making that argument that it's not just Russians that are deporting children. Apparently, Western countries are also doing the same thing. Well, thank you, Gabriella, for drawing attention to that. I think it's always very important that we return to that issue when there are updates. And of course, we will continue to do so on Ukraine The Latest. We've run out of time, I'm afraid. And I know that Hamish has already had to leave us. So, Dom, can I go to your final thoughts briefly? Yeah, just very quickly, I'd say that in the last hour whilst we've been on air, Alex Crawford, our colleague at Sky News, and Matthew Luxmore from the Wall Street Journal have said that the evacuation point, or they're there, and they, the, the evacuation point that was visited by President Zelensky earlier today has been hit by Russian shelling. They're now reporting that all evacuations have stopped. Uh, and just finally, on the offensive, if this is what it is, I would keep your eyes on the Tokmak area. So the last one I mentioned down in Zaporizhia region, because that is... If you get through there, you can Ukraine could eventually push on to the Azov Sea. So that would sever the land bridge. So of all the areas, that, that I think is the one to watch. Well, thank you very much, Dom. And Gabriella, would you like the very final thoughts for today? Oh, thank you. Yes, I, I just thought I'd draw your attention to the fact that it was Children's Day on the 1st of June. And the UN then published the latest statistics about children who'd been killed or injured. So it's more than 1,500 children that have been killed or injured now since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. And that is absolutely terrible. And it, and it, wasn't, it was made even more graphic and terrible that day by the fact that this nine-year-old girl and her mother were killed in Kyiv when they couldn't get into an air raid shelter because the door was locked. That's really brought, I think, the, the suffering that children are facing to light. And I think that the Ukrainian government is really now trying to front this and, and remind people of how much we need to do to, to try and save children from these terrible futures they're facing. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Just follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear with executive producers David Knowles and Louisa Wells.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.